Loving God, we want to thank you for this opportunity uh, to gather here this morning. We come together as your people that you have called into this relationship with you or perhaps are calling into a relationship with you. And as we discover, it is something that brings peace uh, into our lives. Like we can live in conflict and we can live in all kinds of um, dysfunction and yet in our lives a base note of peace uh, that you describe as something that passes all understanding and yet holds us in place. And this morning we want to look into that and how Christmas uh, brings that into our world. So would you warm our hearts with affection for you? Would you convict and confront us where we need to change and be transformed uh, into people of peace? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Righto. Um, as I said, as we, as we head into Christmas, we are spending the four Sundays of Advent, that's the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas Day, looking at these themes of uh, hope and peace and joy and love will get lit up as, as we go along. And the idea that as we do, we are looking at how Christmas um, gives us, uh, speaks to these themes of hope and peace and joy and love and gives us some concrete meaning into them, uh, some substance that we can live in, and that we can live out of. That they're not just merely aspirational or they're not just the sentimentality of the season, but rather the Christmas story is a story that delivers hope, that establishes peace, that fosters uh, irreducible, uh, um, indestructible joy and makes love real, makes love something that is more than just the, the subjective nature of our feelings. Advent, as we've said, is a word or it's this uh, banner really that we give to this season finds its origin in, the, in this Greek word parousia, which means uh, in the writings that you see it, it can mean arrival or coming. Uh, it, it, it describes presence, if you like. It, it, the word group kind of conveys the thought of, of coming and arriving and, and in the first stage of maybe someone's presence with you, it, it can mean to walk alongside of. This word parousia in Advent is used when referring to the arrival of Jesus as the arrival, the coming uh, of the presence of God, uh, his activity into the world to reconcile uh, humanity back into a peaceful relationships with him by destroying the power of sin that causes conflict in our world. That's what the season of Advent is here for. That's what we try and celebrate at Christmas. It seeks to put in front of us this idea of God and sinners reconciled. We sing it in our Christmas carols. The New Testament writers, they use this word group to speak about how this same Jesus who has come into the world, brought the very presence of God into the world, his activity here to deal with sin and offer peace, uh, what's described as the favor of God, this reality into our lives, how this same Jesus will one day come again to make that peace that he has begun perfectly experienced and eternally uh, fixed reality in our lives. And if you read in Hebrews chapter 9 there, that's what it's saying. It actually describes these two parousias, these two comings that create and fix a relationship of peace with God. And we stand now in between these two proclamations. God has come and come Lord Jesus. The first kind of grounds our confidence in the second. 
the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus grounds and shapes our hope in the return and the reign and the renewal of all things to come. And that's the space in which we live. We live between two advents. We live with the history and the experience of the first one and how that shapes our concrete hope in the second. And in week one of our Advent series, we looked at hope. A hope that is not like the, the scrawling of a finger on the surface of a pond. A hope that is not just some sort of emotive, if I you know, pray hard enough, if I just do enough good stuff, uh, work hard enough. But a hope that is grounded in the arrival, the already known, the already seen presence, power of God in the world and in our hearts. Well, this week we are reflecting on another universal longing, peace. And peace is a little different to hope. Hope was something we were given. Peace is something we have lost. Lost from our original created state, if you like. If you can remember back into our Genesis series, we saw that the Bible gives us account of the world uh, originally being created in what the Hebrew writers call this world uh, shalom. Shalom meant not only uh, inner peace or spiritual peace, it meant the wholeness and completeness throughout all of creation. When God set up the world, he set it up at peace, which in the biblical framework means uh, a state of harmony, a state of completeness, everything relating to everything else as it should be for the well-being of creation and for the, and for the glory of God. Peace is not something that we had to try and create. It's not a human idea, but it is the it is actually the quality of the character of God written into the fabric of creation. God's presence is creation's peace. And this is the picture that we get in Genesis. Everything uh, in order, everything in rhythm, uh, everything in authentic relationship with each other. And that's what the writer of Genesis 1, uh, 31 is conveying when he sums up creation by saying, and God saw everything he, he had made and behold, it was good. Like it was at peace. It, it, it just worked. It's what the Old Testament writers call shalom. And the New Testament writers would call erene, peace based in the character and the presence of God. His rule and his reign. And humanity experienced this peace both personally and intimately and practically. And the biblical writer just has this phrase that we all think is a little weird, that they were naked and they knew no shame. And all that simply means is that they were totally and completely uh, relational intimacy with any anxiety at any level between us and God, between us and each other, and, and between us and creation. That's what that's capturing there. The peace of God is this qualitative power that stands behind the, the order that is brought out of the chaos in the first two chapters of Genesis as God speaks uh, rhythms and order into the universe, into being. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews, when searching uh, for an overall, an overarching banner to describe the redemptive work of God, the redemptive work of God taking chaos and order in our lives that Jesus does, as he wraps up the book, he calls God the God of peace. Read about that in Hebrews 13.20. The book of Hebrews encourages us to pursue peace because of the peace of making and peace-giving work of Jesus. 
And yet our current reality is anything but peaceful. Anxiety, unrest, conflict and disaster are more universal reality on, on, on life on planet Earth than, than, than we're comfortable with, than, than we sort of think that this picture should lead to. Wherever it's a, the, you know, the ongoing war in the Ukraine, the, 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 the renewal of war on the Gaza Strip, the gang violence in Haiti, you know, the, the climate-driven, fragile kind of emergence of Sudan, uh, South S Sudan as they recover from civil war there. There's all these conflicts. And then there's this personal insecurity that we feel around the disordered relationships in our homes, in our marriages, in our work. Our loss of peace with God has led to chaos, the unravelling of shalom in the world and the unravelling of shalom in our hearts. All through our creation we see it. And in Genesis 3 we read how our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke the rhythm of creation by mistrusting the peace behind it, by declaring that the character and the word of God is not enough. Can't hold these things together. Breaking shalom and peace with God. This is what the Bible calls sin and its approach towards God, an act of relational treason against our Creator that has resulted in the previously perfect ordered world no longer functioning in its peaceful condition and design. It's now in the hands of humanity, alienated and at enmity with God. Under the influence of sin and everything we experience, as the, the writer, the biblical writer says, uh, is born to strife as surely as the embers rise up, as sure as the flames rise up. And while creation and relationships um, are this way, they still though reflect some of the beauty and design. The basic order and the basic structures of creation are still here, but what is gone is the peace. Its completeness has been fractured, its wholeness unraveling. And whether you hold that the Genesis account of the human condition and creation uh, is a historical fact right now, well, that's a question of its own, whether you kind of hold that or not. But what we have here as we read Genesis 3 is literally the only good and consistent explanation for why we long for peace. It's a lost base note of our creation. It's also the only good and consistent explanation for why we feel so disturbed, why we feel so much unrest when relationships get torn apart, when we fight with our kids, when we have disunity in our marriages, when, when we have like beef at work, when there's war around the globe. It is because we were created to know peace. So what should the God of peace do with those he created in his image to be peace cultivators, to be peace images. But rather than be that, they have instead cultivated and reproduced conflict and war and strife. With every little act that we do, with every little act of disorder, we declare that God is not a God of peace. What should this God do with humanity? When well, Genesis 3, as the dust settles, on what we, you know, this peace shattering quake through our creation, God responds with a pronouncement of judgment. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. Sin has its just, just penalty. But within that judgment is also a promise of grace. God will not leave us in the grip of the devil or to our own devices. 
God promises to act on our behalf, to get involved in fixing the problem. And in there we see this promise of a child, a descendant, a seed, who will reconcile humanity back to God and will destroy the curse of sin. And its author that has made knowing peace so elusive, so hard to have in our lives. This promise of a child, as I have said a couple of times, becomes the organizing theme and the anticipated tension of the Bible as the story of this promise is carried along within human history in spite of our constant uh, capacity to work against it. We see God just keeps moving this story along. The Bible is the record or the recorded history of the development of this promise to reconcile the world back to a state of peace. And as the story of the Bible unfolded, God kind of drops, continues to drop clues and reminders along the way of that original promise that would awaken our hearts to to continue to long and have hope for better days, days of peace, for the presence of God to make all things better. For the biblical authors, the hope of this shalom was wrapped up in this mystical person. Someone is coming who will re-establish peace. Someone is coming who will heal the human condition of enmity with God and conflict in creation. But as I said, as the promise develops, we also see running parallel to this is a bit of what we might call an objective lesson in our need, in our inability for ourselves to foster peace, despite the fact that God keeps dropping in to um, human history and gives laws that describe how we are to cultivate peace. And then God establishes kings that are there to foster peace and then sends prophets to recall people back to his design. What we have is this sin continuously reveals that we would rather tear things apart than put them back together. We would rather pull each other apart than do the work required to put the things back together. Sin keeps us from the relational presence of God needed to know how to nurture peace, how to be peacemakers. Humanity is not adapt at making peace without the presence of God as the defining reality in our lives. One of the ways in which God keeps this promise alive and develops a picture of who this figure is, this this child, who they would be, was through prophets, agents who spoke God's word into the lives of his people, reminding them of who he is and what he has promised to do on their behalf. One of these prophets is a lad known as Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke into a time where peace had basically vanished and God's people lived in uh, dislocated unrest and broken shalom. Under kings, they lived under kings who had essentially removed the presence of God from, from the life of, of God's people, like just crazy jerks, Ahaz uh, and he, um, yeah, Hezekiah, like the, I think uh, Uzziah was the first king, as, as Isaiah prophesied. He was okay, he started well, but he kind of blew up at the end. His pride got him. And then we've just got kings just, just sliding on a just circling the drain really as they head towards life without the presence of God. The known world was dark and a disordered place. And Isaiah speaks of a child who would be born a king, a future 
Prince of Peace and that this king would bring a kingdom, a reign that would be characterized by the presence of God's peace but not temporal or fleeting peace like Uzziah was a king who brought temporal and fleeting peace but increasing and unending peace in which justice and righteousness will be the cornerstone of this king's administration. And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, he reminded God's people that this coming reconciler would be a child, a child of miraculous and humble arrival. And then at the same time, um, one of Isaiah's contemporaries, a guy called Micah, is this other clue dropper developing the picture of this coming promised peace also spoke into this environment where there was no peace and where there was a longing for it. Micah describes the coming of one in chapter 4-3 as someone who judges between many nations and will settle disputes for the strong far and wide. It is an exercise of peace that is universal in scope for all people and all nations, not just for some particular nation. Under this person's reign, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation and they will not train for warfare anymore. So the resources of warfare get repurposed for the mutual benefit of others. This is one of the pictures that the Bible uses to describe what peace could look like. It's not merely the stopping of hostilities, but it's the the working together for the mutual benefit of others. This is what peace could look like. And then in Micah 5, adds some more information to the arrival, to the advent of this deliverer of peace. Coming from ancient promises of a king in the line of David... He will be born into poverty, born into obscurity. However, he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the Lord his God. And he will bring security and his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And this this person, this child, this king that he's speaking about, he finishes by saying, shall be their peace. Not will create peace through governmental reform or social welfare or military presence but he will be peace he will be the source and the place of peace peace is found in his presence that the very nature of God that is peace is in this child this ruler this person this is how the Bible understands how peace will arrive and what it will be like It's not just the absence or the ceasing of war and conflict and anxiety and sort of restlessness. It is the presence of something greater coming in their place. The presence of a person who is in very nature God. So 700 years later, as it's recorded in our New Testament, there is this story about this miraculous birth. And all the clues begin to point in the direction of this birth. Jesus, as Micah and Isaiah have predicted, and just as Genesis has promised, is the peace bringer. Christmas is about the arrival, the coming of the presence of peace in a person. A first century historian and gospel writer, Luke, records two songs about the arrival of this peace, this this person. One is from a priest, Zechariah, 
a man steeped in the history and the knowledge and the expectations of God's promises. And the other is from angels who are from the very presence of God. Peace has come. Peace that is a result of the tender mercy of God to give light, to be a presence for those who, who live in, in the chaos of darkness and guide them to a path of peace, to, to someone who would come alongside and walk and bring peace into the lives of people. And perhaps the most familiar Christmas announcement of peace, peace on earth, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom God's favor rests. Heaven and earth rejoice like priests and angels rejoice at the arrival of, priest, of, the, of peace. Not some abstract idea or aspiration, but in the person of a child who at his birth is described as a king, who through his presence will, will be for those who receive him, for those who perceive that this child is the favor of God towards humanity, will be this wonderful counselor, this, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, is the presence, it's the description of God, is the very presence of God. And on the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will be their peace. He is the very presence. This is the character of God, the presence of God being described. The peace of Christmas is is not the absence of conflict in general, but the establishment of the presence of God's favor in the human heart through the arrival of this child. Peace will not be the result of human administration, the artful kind of negotiations, or unyielding power of prime ministers or presidents or dictators. But peace comes by perceiving the presence of divinely delivered promise. Of all the people in the world to hear of the arrival of peace, it is shepherds who are first to hear that, that God's peace has arrived. And they are told that this peace can be found in a child in a town of Bethlehem and he's wrapped in rags and he's held by a peasant girl. And all of a sudden, all of the clues of these, of these um, prophets have got flesh put on them, have put historic fact to them. When the peace of God finally arrives, it is relational, approachable, and knowable. But it's not acquirable unless you perceive it or see it. His presence, unless you perceive and see the presence of this child as God's response to our peace-destroying sin. In order to encounter this peace that this child is, you must be able to see him. Encounter him as the glory of God, the sum of all the clues of the Old Testament. Come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Bring our chaos back into order. Turn the state of our war-torn hearts to see that see God as an enemy, that see God as someone to hide from, someone that we mistrust, someone that we're alienated from, as to someone that we can live with, that we can walk alongside of, whose, whose presence comes into our life in a loving, transforming way the core of who we are for the shepherds this meant responding to the news the song of the angels they had to go and see and and perceive for themselves whether it was true for you and i it means responding to the full story of this child named jesus 
who as we read the Gospels, whose entire life was one of restoring and bringing God's peace and presence and power to bear on the lives and environments of people that the presence of sin had torn apart, had brought unrest. We see that Jesus, as he, as he moves through his life, heals and restores the physical ailments of people, curing the lame, healing the sick, uh, restoring even lepers back to wholeness, to show that he is the one who can reorder what sin has disordered. He is the one to deal with even sin's chaos in our physical bodies. If Jesus can halt and, and, and reorder the, the fruit of sin in our lives, then maybe he is capable of getting to the root of this issue of sin. Jesus shows himself to be the God of peace who brings order to even decaying physical life. We see even on one occasion that Jesus can bring peace to the forces of nature as he commands a violent sea to be calm. The presence of God to speak to his creation, to obey his voice and be at peace. In John's gospel we read that Jesus raised a man by the name of Lazarus who had been dead for four days. Jesus has power over death. He can restore what sin has claimed. He brings peace even where the terror of death seeks to rip all things apart. And Paul would write, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? With him being swallowed up in peace. In Colossians 1, 20-21, we read that Jesus makes peace through the blood of the cross that he reconciles all things through his death. Jesus brings warring parties together to make lasting, eternal shalom. By his death, he brings peace. He brings order. Jesus rescues rebellious people like you and I, and he offers himself on a cross as a suitable payment for our sin, and he brings us to God by removing the sin that has alienated us. He reconciles us to God. This is how God makes peace in the human soul. The New Testament writers claim that, it is, that, that Jesus made peace between God and humanity by having his own peace torn apart, by losing the presence of peace in his experience, by facing the peace-destroying power of sin on a cross, so that we could have ours put back together again so that we could then now have access to the presence of God, so that we can have our lives shaped by his presence, his peace in our hearts. Romans 5.1 tells us that since we have been justified by faith, that is, since we have come to perceive and trust that Jesus is God's peacemaker, we have peace through God. We have peace through God through Jesus the Lord. The idea is that Jesus has restored us to wholeness uh, from the brokenness of relationships that we experience with each other. He's restored us to wholeness with each other and God through the presence of Christ. Verse 10, Paul lets us know that it's not our efforts that achieve peace, but the death of Jesus for our sin and the life-giving resurrection life of Jesus that now gives us access to God. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says that Jesus is our peace. He is the peace of Isaiah and Micah. Paul is letting us know that the ideal we long for, 
The presence we miss is found in this person of Jesus. He brings us back to peace with God. This is why when Jesus was leaving, like we have this upper room discourse in, in John 14 through to John 17, and he's speaking to his followers. And, and, and the big topic is, how, we, how is peace going to come? He's leaving. The world is still insane. And Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then a little bit further on he says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And I was about to start to write a second sermon here. I don't have time for it today. But if you want to know what overcome the world looks like, what, what, what this means, then go and read Revelations 12. It's kind of like a behind-the-scenes description of what is happening at a cosmic level due to the arrival of this child of peace into human history. This is the same author that wrote John that writes Revelation, and he just gives this description of what's going on. They're actually... Young adults have got a really cool picture of it on a whiteboard, so you can go and talk to them about that. Jesus brings the presence of peace here, peace of the soul, of life reordering, where sin <clears throat> and conflict once ruled. Like There's this cosmic picture there of how sin and conflict rules the world, and, 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 then Jesus, and when Jesus comes, he just reorders it and puts it back together and it is it's like it's like if you, you read that passage in Isaiah it says it's without boundaries like it's going to have no end and we think hang on a minute where, where is that being like we, we don't see peace in our world and yet there's like 2.4 billion Christians on planet earth who say this peace has arrived in their lives and most of them are in places that have hard boundaries, hard borders. Like you can't get in there. Try going into North Korea. Try going into China. Try getting into some of these uh, Islamic State countries or whatever they are, these hard border countries. And yet the peace of God in Jesus Christ is just going straight through those borders and into the hearts of people. And if you want to think whether or not this kingdom is, is increasing without end, just, just look at the population of Christianity on the earth since this was said. It's in the heart, it's, and it's not in just one little geographical location. It's around the globe. Christmas is not some sentimental story of goodwill, of working towards peace based on trying to be better people, create better systems, do better deeds. It is the good news that the glory of God, the character of God, and the peace of God can be the organizing presence in your heart that replaces the broken presence of sin. Christmas is not about pretending that we can create peace. It is about seeing that peace has come to make us whole again, to come into our lives. So as the shepherds did, <clears throat> let us make room. Let us make room for this child of peace. And the question is, has your heart perceived its need for peace? Peace that it can't construct through its own administration, but peace that it can receive as it perceives the message of Christmas.
the child of peace. Let's pray. I mean, God, we thank you for this season that opens up uh, to us these conversations uh, that bring it around like our lives as we live in the world and this, this idea of peace and we live in a world that <clears throat> is a long way from being peaceful. And yet here is this promise that is just kind of like some abstract idea but is actually part of the human story that moves the whole way along our existence and arrives into our time and our space and interacts with us. The story of a God who would come personally to deliver peace in a real concrete way through this person, Jesus. And the more we investigate his life and the, and the more we perceive who he is and the more we investigate uh, all the implications of his life, his death and his resurrection, our hearts are strangely warm to perceive that this is peace. That this is God reconciling the soul back to its original uh, created state in relationship with him and then out of that, uh, just transforming relationships with others and the rest of creation. Now, our prayer this morning is that as we get into this Christmas season, as we get about all that we have to do, that we would stop and, and uh, our hearts and our minds would think about, well, what are the drivers of peace here as we move about these things? And we just pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.